0: This evening we have the great privilege of turning our attention to the last four verses of Haggai chapter 2 as our study of the book of Haggai comes to a close. And here in his final oracle or message from God to the exiled community, the prophet Haggai ends on a high note as he summarizes points he's previously made and he goes beyond them to point the exiles to a magnificent future. And one of the things I find interesting as we wrap up our examination of Haggai is God's purpose in giving us individuals like the prophet Haggai. Individuals in whom we know little about. To declare his greatness and glory, the prophet prophet Haggai appears briefly and then he does what? He vanishes. We get two chapters with him. Nahum, Habakkuk, and Malachi we know nothing about. And what we know about Haggai comes to us in precise dates in a very short time period of his life. We don't know if these months occurred when Haggai was younger or if he spoke to the exiled community when he was older. We do know he's called a prophet, which prompts one commentator to note this fact alone suggests that he is well known. But whether that was a result of the prophecies here or whether he was already known, we cannot tell. But what is unusual, he concludes, is for such a short period to have such a powerful effect. The last time we met, Haggai concluded in verse 19, But from this day, I will bless you. So for the purposes of our time here this evening, we're going to consider both the specific as well as eternal consequences of his blessing. The blessing Haggai spoke in verse 19. Let's now ask the Lord's blessing on the preaching of his word to us. Our Father in heaven, we pray that your spirit would open our hearts and our minds to understand your word, to apply it to our lives, and to live it out before you and for your glory alone. For we pray this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. In verse 18 of chapter 2, Haggai chapter 2, we're told that that was the day that the foundation of the temple was relayed. And on on that day, Haggai received two messages from the Lord. The latter focusing on Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, the civic leader of the exiles that restored community. And as a recipient of God's word, Haggai is given further instruction to speak to Zerubbabel. Now this is important because Zerubbabel is is much more than just a civic leader. He's of the line of David, who's of the line of our Savior Jesus Christ. We're told as much in Jesus' genealogy passage in Luke's gospel, chapter 3, verse 27. And so Haggai here is told to tell Zerubbabel this oracle, while addressed to a single individual, was not meant just for him. It wasn't meant for just Zerubbabel alone. It's addressed to Zerubbabel. And Joshua, the high priest, we notice, isn't included. Nor are the remnant of people. But this message also speaks to a wider audience. Similarly, as was the case when Haggai first addressed both Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel and Joshua, an address, remember, that required a response from the exiles. So Haggai addresses Zerubbabel with a word that, at its core, it reassures God's people that God's long term plans for his people have not changed. The exiles who've returned from exile and left wondering if, through all those events, being exiled and then being brought back, has God changed his mind about them? Has his future plans for us changed? Are we still on good good terms or has our present relationship with him changed? These are all valid questions for the exiles to be wondering. And in verse 13 of chapter 1, the exiles were told by the Lord that he was with them. Further, his plans, his future plans were alluded to in verses 6 through 9 of chapter 2. And all of this just helps to reinforce to the exiles that God does indeed care about his people. Remember, he had already spoken to them once that day, and he warned them about their half-hearted work that they did for him. And now through his servant Haggai, he he urges them, in the passage we we looked at last time, uh, verses 10 through 19, he says to carefully consider how you all are behaving. And he concludes with a promise of blessing from that day forward. And here in the verses immediately after, the passage this evening, verses 20 through 23, God speaks again on the same 24th day of the ninth month of the second year of King Darius through the prophet Haggai. And he takes up the broader question of what the future will hold for both God's people as well as the nations. Verse 20 reads, And again the word of the Lord came to Haggai, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. Now, why was it that Zerubbabel was singled out? After all, it was Joshua who would be crowned. If you flip a couple pages forward and look at, uh, at Zechariah 6 with me, beginning in verse 9, we see that there was a command given to crown Joshua. Beginning in verse 11, it reads, Take the silver and gold, make an elaborate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch From his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord, he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule on his throne, so he shall be a priest, the passage concludes, on his throne. Having just noticed that Joshua is to be the one who's crowned later, as we read, crowned a priest, what we'll see shortly is that Zerubbabel is is make great promises, as God will address him directly. In the exile's time of need, it's Zerubbabel, who is their mighty champion. He's the one who God chooses to be the leader of his people. As we'll examine more thoroughly here in a moment, when God designates him as his servant in verse 23. With one commentator noting there can be no higher title of servant in all the Bible. It was Moses, if you recall, who was called my servant by God in Numbers 12, verse 7. The same goes for David in Ezekiel 34, 23. It was Daniel in chapter 6, verse 20, who was called the servant of the living God. Further, in Isaiah chapters 52 and 53, we have what has been dubbed the the servant songs. And in Luke's gospel, 22, verse 27, we read that our Lord Jesus says to his disciples... I am among you as the one who serves. So now we get to add Zerubbabel's name to the list of those who will have this honor of serving God among the Jews. And as God's servant, he will receive orders directly from the Lord. He will be obedient to God and carry out the clear commands given by his almighty Lord. Let's look at these commands, these declarations then, starting in verse 21. God declares what? He says, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them, the horses and their riders, shall come down everyone by the sword of his brother. I will shake, he says, heaven and earth. And God, having previously declared this when he addressed an audience that included Zerubbabel, Back in verse 6, here again, the Lord is now in verse 21 addressing it to him. And he declares that he will shake heaven and earth, that heaven and earth and the universe are objects of his action. And the shaking is much more than just a physical response to the Lord's intervening. One commentator states, what is referred to as the action of the Lord upsetting, not so much, he says, the physical framework of the universe but those political and social structures that seemed so oppressive to the Jews. Psalm 121, verses 2 through 4, the psalmist writes, My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. All is under God's control, and he acts to ensure that the actions taken by those who oppressed his people would come to an end. It is he who acts on a universal scale for the sake of the house of David, and for what? The good of his people. He then goes on to say, I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. We see in Deuteronomy 29, Jeremiah 20, Amos chapter 4, and Isaiah 13, this word overthrow associated with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. This Hebrew verb is is therefore associated with what God did to Sodom because of Sodom's wickedness. And while the reason for such overthrowing is not specified here, it's the Lord's prerogative and it's the Lord's power to cause kingdoms to fall. Remember, it was Daniel when he interpreted the words that Belshazzar had seen the fingers riding on the hand. And what does Daniel tell Belshazzar the, the, the meaning of the first word mene means? God has numbered your kingdom, and he's finished it. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. He continues the depiction of God's action here. And what the Lord is, is continuing to do here is to emphasize that every authority Every principality and every power that sets itself up against the Lord and his anointed will ultimately come to nothing. Are you not God in heaven? Read Second Chronicles 20, verse 6. And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might, so that no one is able to withstand you? God has the strength to deliver and to destroy the power of all kingdoms, of the nations, all their domains and sources of power. They will be devastated and unable to operate against God's cause and God's people, writes John McKay. And this inclusion of Gentile kingdoms, or translated literally to kingdoms of the nations, it bluntly shows what lies behind the previous verses. Zerubbabel is the political head of the exiles. It therefore makes sense for this message of destroying thrones and destroying kingdoms to be addressed to him. Because ultimately it, it affirms the universality of God's rule and the election of Israel as God's holy nation represented in his election of his governor, Zerubbabel. And what I don't want us to miss or somehow get lost in, in the rubble from the action taking place here is that in these verses we've seen God communicate to his messenger Haggai that he will shake, that he will overthrow, that he will destroy. And what is it that God is doing here with these verbs, action verbs? He's emphasizing his power, his power even to be destructive, but but greater than that, right? Very destructive, all of which underscore his supremacy as true king over all the nations. God had overthrown the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He ran down fire from heaven on them. God had destroyed the Canaanites for their sin, casting them out of the land in front of Joshua as he had promised. So with that in mind, as we have seen the Lord communicating through his prophet Haggai, who's instructed to then speak this word to Zerubbabel, that he will destroy the rival seats of power and remove all opposition at its source, the Lord then moves into showing that this removal also includes specific manifestations of these powers and he symbolizes them through chariots and horses and riders. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down. God is saying his nation is more powerful than yours. It's that simple. As God promises here to destroy the sources of the nation's security, your riders, your chariots, your horses. I will destroy them all. And you can find comfort in none of it. It's this language that I hope reminds you of Exodus 14 because it echoes that of the destruction of Pharaoh and his army at the Red Sea and the imagery of the annihilation of the nations. Multiple times in that chapter, Exodus 14, do we see chariots, and horses in pursuit of God's people, in pursuit of Israel. But moreover, we also see the nation's chariots are what? They're their defense. Therefore, to destroy these would leave nations not only defenseless, but it would leave them very vulnerable. And the image we take away is indeed of internal chaos and eventual decline. Everyone by the sword of his brother. The logical conclusion being the people within the nations warring against one another. 1 Samuel 14, verse 20. Then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled and they went to battle. And indeed, every man's sword was against his neighbor and there was very great confusion. And Ezekiel thirty-eight twenty-one reads, I will call for a sword against Gog throughout... All my mountains, says the Lord God, every man's sword will be against his brother. As God sent confusion among her enemies in Israel's past wars so that they fought amongst themselves, so in the future her opponents will fall by the sword of their own brother. And of this warring and destroying, one writer expresses shaking the heavens and the earth, and destroying the nations demonstrate God's power over creation and political structures, nothing, he concludes, and we know this, but nothing lies beyond God's power. And again, remember, the exiles were still uncertain if the Lord's present and future plans had changed. They continued to worry about their status with God. They hadn't done as he commanded, and when they worked, it was done half-heartedly. And as we've previously seen, the Lord here again uses this language to firmly and soundly, and as a father would his child, remind his people how in the past he had established his power to act, to judge the wicked, and in judging the wicked, he's done what? Saving his people. He's reminding the exiles to just think, stop and think, remember Exert some brand energy. Think about what I've done. And in doing that, what have I promised to do? I'm the faithful one. Trust me. Because verse 23 reads, In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shiltiel, says the Lord, and will make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. Hear the words, take. And chosen, they convey the sense of divine election in this context. And its terminology recalls of that moment in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. And that moment of God's taking Israel as his people, and King David, as seen in 2 Samuel 7, verse 8, to be ruler over Israel. Like I, likewise, we see in Nehemiah 9.7 and Deuteronomy seven verse six, God choosing Abraham and Israel for a special covenant relationship out of all the peoples of the earth. That's who he chose. And this is, is God showing his people why they can trust him. He's reminding them, this is why you can trust me. He's using the prophet now Haggai to remind them of their divine election at a time in which was much needed giving their plight post-exile from Babylon. So let's dig a little deeper. This is when Pastor Robbins would say, let's roll up our sleeves. Let's dig a little deeper into the person of Zerubbabel in order to understand why this title of servant, as was mentioned previously, why this title is so significant and it's so important. If we look back at Ezra 6.15, we notice something. It reads, now the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. He's not mentioned in the account of the temple's completion, Zerubbabel, is he? So in one sense, if we were to compare him to the rebuilt temple itself, he would come across as a minor player, but a minor player in a larger story. Some people like to be extras. But we would be foolish to do that, wouldn't we? As Robert Fial states, as we have already seen in relation to the temple, so in relation to Zerubbabel, to look on that event. And this individual is insignificant, he says, is to miss the point. We looked earlier at how both Moses and David were referred to as servant. And here in verse 23, the Lord's servant Zerubbabel now becomes a vital link in the chain leading to the true Messiah in whom the functions of priest and king would perfectly combine. Now some commentators and scholars have have argued that Zechariah 4, 6 through 10, it sees Zerubbabel's role in all this as simply a temple builder, not a great military leader. But again, this misses the point as the prophet Haggai makes it pretty clear that it's not Zerubbabel, but it's the Lord who will win the battle, and that it's the Messiah who will then inherit the kingdom. It was Zerubbabel in Matthew 1.13 who appears in the genealogy of Jesus. And it was Zerubbabel here in verse 23... ...whom God chose to show that messianic line continuing to the exiles. And this is important. It's important to note because, again, it was Joshua who would later be crowned. Joshua got the glory. Not Zerubbabel, but here, God's done what? He's entrusted Zerubbabel with his authority... And he approved of his efforts. I will make you like a signet ring, says the Lord of hosts. And this deeply mattered to the exiles as they were very familiar with Psalm chapter 2. They were all aware of God's promises, but they also knew how many times as a nation, how many times they had blown it, how their kings had blown it. They were well aware of the stink and the stench that followed them. Think of pig pen from the peanuts. They were well aware of this Stinch. They were well aware of the cloud, of their unfaithfulness to Yahweh God. In fact, they likely assumed that from the exile itself that the Lord had given up on the promises to the descendants of David. Hadn't God said as much in Jeremiah 22, verses 24 through 27? It was there where the Lord declared to King Jehoiachin that even if, if he were a seal on the Lord's right hand... God would tear him off and give him over to those who sought his life. And what was this seal? In those days, it was worn on a ring or a chain around one's neck so that it could be kept close at all times. He didn't want to lose it. It would be similar as if you lost your passport in an international airport. If, If lost, it could be catastrophic because then how could you attest to your authority at customs? You had a way then of showing your authenticity with the signet ring. So the exiles, they likely figured the Davidic covenant, having run its course, it was a good run. But ultimately a holy God, I imagine they assumed, can only tolerate so much sin. But what does the Lord again choose to do here? He uses a nobody, a low-level government employee, in what's almost a census-designated place, to announce the restoration of the Lord's protection for the line of David. This ring was worn by kings. And here God was saying, Zerubbabel, I have chosen you to keep safely this sign of my decree. This action led one commentator to conclude this petty prince of Judah, Zerubbabel, this petty prince of Judah, a small impoverished nation, Under foreign dominion, was honored by the supreme ruler of the world and his church. The Lord of of hosts to be a prominent link in that illustrious chain of ancestors. Extending from King David to Jesus Christ, the God-man, King of kings, and Lord of lords. Did Zerubbabel ever reign as king of Judah? No, he did not. But you can rest assured that he was surely one of those mentioned in Hebrews 11:13, who died in faith, having received, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. That was Zerubbabel. He was an obedient forerunner to our blessed Lord. He got on with the work God gave him to do of rebuilding the temple, and he did it faithfully. He did it loyally. And you have to believe he did it cheerfully. And God honored him for his labors in the house of the Lord. So in the larger context of this chapter, of Haggai chapter 2, God's affirmation of Zerubbabel is likewise part of encouraging his people, the remnant there, to complete the temple because God promised provision and he promised leadership in the rebuilding efforts. For a people, writes Mignon Jacobs, living under Persian rule, and at the same time attempting, they're trying to make sense of its tradition, that they are at the center of God's rule on earth. This passage, it affirms the traditions, and in doing so, it affirms God's power. So where, where does that leave us here this evening? I've got a handful of points from this passage, and then I want us to, to look at the overall scope of how to apply this short little book, to our lives. First, as we saw that it was Zerubbabel who was called out, the one chosen for the purpose of building the temple, the same is the case today. Romans 14, verse 19 tells us, Therefore let us pursue the things which make for peace, and the things by which one may edify another. God's people are to edify God's building. That is His people. He's called us to be builders of his church. Because the church is God's appointed means of gospel witness. When we meet in this building for the purpose of corporate worship, we are heeding the call seen earlier in Haggai 1 verse 8 of building the house. So we must continue to find ways to get on with that task and not grow weary of it in a world full of competing events. Building this house for God's glory, not man's glory, but solely our Lord's glory. And secondly, and this one's it's quick and short, and we all know it. Ultimately, all sin is self-destructive. All sin is self-destructive since it alienates one from God. Sin breeds selfishness and self-reliance, not selflessness and soul-dependence. Sin leads to both physical and spiritual death. And thirdly, to follow up, while sin is indeed self-destructive, so is evil. Evil is inherently self-destructive, and this point should provide you with an extra dose of relief when overwhelmed at the landscape of here in the West, institutions crumbling, Multinational investment corporations seemingly purchasing what's left of ours and other countries. Rampant secularization of life in our Christian heritage seemingly dismantled overnight. At least that's how it feels. Do we, like Eli, do we tremble and cower for the ark of God? Never. Christ is building his church. Just look around you this evening. Christ is building his church. If you don't believe me, come back next week to hear how God is building his church just down the road in Spartanburg, in and around our nation's capital, in Belgium, in Statesboro, Georgia. Ask Mr. Rios about New York. Friends, Christ is building his church, and nothing can prevent that. Fourthly, as the Lord uses matters of history, actions that were on record, because that's what He did here in this passage, to demonstrate or provide proof of His ability to deliver His own. He's also reminding you this evening, just as He did when speaking through Haggai to Zerubbabel, that His power is not a thing of the past, like an antique passed down that a grandchild, generations later, no longer has use for. I don't want your eight track. His his power is for today, as in now, as well as for the future. And this point of application, I imagine, is speaking to some of you who, when reading the Bible, you come across those passages that remind you of the glory days, or you might call it the, the golden age. I love how someone once put it, the golden past, and this is great, the depressing present. The golden past and the depressing present. Friends, there's nothing depressing about being in Christ. Yes, remember the the great things that God did for our forefathers in the past, but do not put him in a box and ask him, "Well, well, where are you now when I need you most? You haven't answered these prayers. Like Christian and Hopeful, those characters made famous in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, you each have the promise key to giant despair's dungeon. Don't simply think that because in your estimation God is is not active now. And then perhaps all those previous moments where you have claimed to seen him at work, that it makes them all just one big grand illusion. I will, let, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Find your promise key in the word of God. Open the dungeon's lock and get back on the highway again. It, it is that easy. And if we look at some of the overall themes learned from Haggai, for there are many, we can take away a handful of things this evening. There are great similarities between Haggai's day and ours. Think of when Haggai began to preach. What was the state of the temple? It was in ruins. I think it's fair to compare the church today to a similar state of decay. This is dated only three years, but as of 2020... Barna's data concluded that only one in four Americans profess to be a practicing Christian. And one-third fewer Americans attends church weekly now than in 1993. Gone are the days when one's identity is not defined by a temporal state but an eternal estate. Yet the fact remains that we must be the temple of the living God. He's calling his people to actively build his house, the church, for his glory. And how do we do this? How do we build his church for his glory? You start by asking yourselves, do your actions truly seek to honor God? We so often choose what pleases us, don't we? But the aim is that of honoring God. Does God come first in your life? Is it his will or is it your will? Unless the Lord builds the house, we know how it goes those who labor in vain, you're wasting your time if it's your will. Going back to Zerubbabel, I hope this, this evening study encouraged you as well as reminded you that you serve and are called by a God who will not give up on you. He will not give up on you. He does not give up on his people. When you see that God renewed his promise through someone like Zerubbabel that ought to give you great hope that your Father in heaven will never forsake you. And he will never abandon you. Through time and time again, you fail him. And you let him down. He will never be unfaithful. And he will never leave you to your fate. Never. So let this truth spur you on to continued acts of obedience. Because even in the moments that seem so uneventful or so unmemorable in the eyes of the world, they have an eternal significance that stretch far beyond the visible. Because like Zerubbabel, you all are called to be faithful in even the little things in life. Your labors will not be in vain. Your efforts expended to pursue holiness, yes, went hard. Yes, when exhausting. Yes, when at wit's end. Your efforts to expend and that pursuit of holiness will never be wasted. You will surely receive your reward. Just keep building and do it each day with joy and gladness. Hoping to hear the words, trusting you will in Christ. The words of our God, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you Ruler, he says, over many things. Lastly, what these two chapters of Haggai have shown us is that we do not look to, nor is our hope found. And the servant Zerubbabel is it. This is the good news. We look to the greater son of Zerubbabel, the one to whom Zerubbabel himself pointed to, Jesus Christ. It is the Messiah who is the sole basis of our hope. And this somewhat piggybacks off of our last point. But the good news of Haggai is that faithfulness will equally, certainly have its reward. None of your labors will be wasted in the purposes of God because at the end of time, who will you see? Your Savior exalted to the place that he deserves as the name that is over every name. His enemies made into footstools. And his kingdom come in all, not just some, but in all of its fullness. Are you, with eager anticipation, are you looking forward to that sight this evening? I pray you are. Pray with me. Father, we praise you for the work of the gospel and the message of salvation. We praise you for your love to us and for the privilege that you give to us to work in your kingdom. We ask, O Lord, that you would help us to be faithful, help us to be committed. And would you use us by your spirit, Lord, to bring about your glory.